Now on Documentary on News Talk, narrated by his brother Pio. This documentary details the medical challenges Dermot Fenton faced with cystic fibrosis and the life-altering impact his transplant would have for two other families on a fateful night in 1998. Narrated by P.O. Fenton, produced by Daniel Cahill, this is A Man from Cork. New Year's Eve 2015. Outside my window, the sound of fireworks explode, battling against a strong winter wind to fill the night sky with a kaleidoscope of colours. Another sound is the raised voices of revellers counting down the remaining few hours of the year. It is in these last few hours of 2015 that I am writing the eulogy for my brother Dermot, whose funeral is tomorrow. My name is P.O. Fenton, and my brother Dermot, or Der as most people called him, lived a medically challenged life. He was diagnosed with cystic fibrosis as a baby and lived with it until his death at the age of 41. Der made national headlines in 1998 when at age 24 he became a recipient of a double lung and heart transplant in London. This was a rare procedure at this time being amongst the most complex transplants that could be performed. It was further complicated by being a particularly unusual type of heart and lung transplant. Mercy Mission, the government jet comes to the aid of a heart transplant patient. A 24-year-old man from Cork is said to be doing well in hospital after being flown to London on the government jet for a heart and lung transplant. The aircraft was on its way from Dublin to Brussels when it was diverted to take Dermot Fenton to Britain after donor organs became available. His parents are at his bedside in London's Harefield Hospital. Since he died, and probably long before that, I've had a need to share my brother's transplant story. I saw firsthand how remarkably resilient and brave he was in many situations over the years. I also knew the impact of his transplant operation on the lives of others. Dar was born on the 5th of November, 1974. He was the third eldest of six children born into a farming family in the rural village of Glenville, roughly 10 miles north of Cork City. Within a couple of weeks of his birth, it became apparent to my mum and dad, Gubnet and Davy, that something wasn't quite right. He was born on the 5th of November, 1974. He was quite normal and healthy looking at the time. Then as the weeks went on, he had um, lost weight and or didn't gain weight and sounded rather sick in a way. So he was landed into hospital then. First of all, he sends a cold and then he must say with the heater like I said, the engine's hands are frozen. And since the old kids' hands are cold, towards the night in Dr. Man, he was in to see David's father and um, he said to me, bring him into Finbass, he said for a blood test, he's very pale. Within days, my brother's condition worsened and he became seriously ill, leading to the first of many long hospital visits throughout his life. He was so ill that parental neglect was suspected, something my mother reflects on with good humour, given my parents' teetotal, clean-living lives. Next thing he got very sick, we couldn't open his eyes, and they sent him back into the and we left him where he was born. Then they transferred him to the Mercy, 
Det var en undermörsel. Jag köpte en skärdig liv om jag kunde. Jag vet att det var en gardrunken på dem. Jag kan inte ha As Derek continued to become progressively more ill, my parents were to receive word of a diagnosis that would shape his and their lives. This day we were told to come in and meet Professor Barry to eat a big table. I didn't even sit down. I said, is he going to die straight away? He rather have a nasty disease. Did you ever hear of it? At that time, we hadn't even had a cystic fibrosis. She we didn't even forget before we were home. What the doctor Barry at the time said if he'll see seven years he could get a fairly good life. He got a good run up to seven then he was fairly sick and uh, he was maybe six or eight weeks in hospital and his mother stayed with him all the time every night. His doctors described cystic fibrosis or CF as a nasty disease. In 1974, as it is now, it was Ireland's most common genetically inherited disease. Ireland has the highest proportion of people with cystic fibrosis in the world. Back when my brother was born, the life expectancy for someone with CF barely reached into the teenage years. CF is a multi-organ disease which primarily impacts on the respiratory and digestive systems. Dealing with the illness required a whole range of medications and therapeutic interventions. Thankfully, the life expectancy and quality of life of CF patients has improved dramatically in recent years. Rory Tallon is a CF patient advocate for Cystic Fibrosis Ireland. So CF, it's a genetically inherited illness. So you're born with it, you don't acquire it. And mostly now since uh, 2011, CF was added to neonatal blood spot screening programs. So babies are, tend to be diagnosed now from birth onwards. Prior to 2011, babies would have been diagnosed through symptom presentation. So most children with CF, those symptoms would present at birth. Some symptoms might present, but it might not have been picked up medically until maybe three, four, five months. And some children you know, might not be diagnosed till three years or five years, depending on, on the severity of the illness and, and the symptoms. CF can be quite a spectrum of illness in the individuals. You have individuals who are quite sick or you have individuals who are very normal health almost with CF. And CF, no matter what level of health, it still presents challenges. You still have medicines and medicine, medical regime and so on. For someone with CF, typically you would be coughing through the day, coughing up mucus. And, and that's when you're well and, and you're ticking over and you're stable. But then frequently what happens, you get an exacerbation of, of your cystic fibrosis. And that is when the chest infection sort of flares up in your lungs. And for those, you need antibiotic therapy. For some people and for, for some children, you might get by with a, a dose of oral antibiotics. But, you know, after a while, your body, the bacteria in your body get a bit immune to those or resistant to those, and, and you need stronger antibiotics. And that's when you, you would typically need to come to hospital then uh, for intravenous antibiotics. And, and typically for someone with CF, you, you might be in hospital two, three, four times a year. It, it varies for everyone, and it's a progressive illness. So over time, your lung function declines because of the constant challenge to your lungs. And, and as your lung function declines, your level of ability declines or your level of disability increases. So people would well-preserved lung function with CF wouldn't necessarily see themselves as disabled because they can probably do most things that others can do. But as your lung function declines in your life and 
and your ability to walk up a flight of stairs decrease you know you, you might need supplemental oxygen to do that you have become quite disabled by that stage yeah. so there's a spectrum of health with cf and any one individual could be in that disabled category or could be in abled category you know yeah. depending on how far their cf has progressed and the rate of progression of cf it's typically around two percent loss of lung function per year but some people go through a bad year or a bad two years and that can accelerate them dramatically down to a lower level of health with cf and some people are lucky enough to have well-preserved lung function well into their 30s 40s you know and so on so you know people might talk about life expectancies and so on with cf and and certainly Back in the 70s and early 80s, you know, life expectancies for people with CF was quite low and people did die very young, you know, 20 or younger. That's changing now, thankfully, to a lot of new treatments and therapies and, you know, infrastructure put into hospitals and and cross-infection prevention uh, protocols that were put into place in hospitals and so on. That's that's helping preserve the life and, and, and the level of health of individuals with CF in Ireland. Growing up, I was always conscious of my brother's ill health, as were my siblings. I shared a bedroom with him, and to this day, I can still hear the rolling chestiness of his cough, something he endured constantly. It was hard for me to reconcile the trauma of his illness with his unending zest for life. My younger sister Breed remembers visiting Dar during his many hospital stays while she was a young girl. Because I, again, because it had been the youngest, I used to always go in with mum when she was going in to see Dar or... If there was anyone going in in the afternoon, I'd go in. I used to always remember he used to have, he used to love the bag of cheese and onion potatoes from the regional in the hospital. They were his favourite. You'd guarantee you'd see him stuffing his face when you rounded the corner to look in the window at him. So I spent a lot of my youth going up to CUH. I'd know CUH like the back of my hand because of going up to there and stuff. But in fairness to him, he was never in bad form when you went into him. He'd always have a smile when he saw you, even though he was going through everything and anything. Despite the very challenging symptoms of his illness, he lived a reasonably vibrant childhood. In between the more intense bouts of illness, often brought about by chest infections, he would try to get on with life as best as possible. On the days he was feeling well, he would work on the farm with my father and typically showed more enthusiasm and ability than the rest of his brothers and sisters. He was entrepreneurial. He set up his own dog kennel business in his late teens. He found a way to balance his medical needs and energy levels against the demands of work. He was brighter and wittier than most people you meet, and his lively, open disposition made him a lot of friends, including longtime friend Peter Curtin. When I knew him first, I didn't know he was sick at all. I probably knew him for quite a while before, you know, for six, nine months before I realised he was sick. My first meeting was with outside the church in Glenville, a Honda 50. For a long time, he was our only source of transport. We had uh, an ever-increasing fleet of feet 127s that, um, that brought us everywhere across the country. We probably pushed, started a 127 in every parish in Cork, at least, over the over the course of our youth. I always envied his um, charm and his his, uh, his his easy way with people. He, he had a, a charisma or something. Well, and we were at time 18, 19, 20, going to a nightclub. It was very frustrating, to be honest, when Dermot could just charm girls left, right and centre. And more of us were left in his wake. <laughs> and uh, and not, not, not a chance of talking to anyone. And charming there was. He had a way about him. As his family, we each experienced it in different ways. For me, it was the comfort of knowing that he had my back, 
He was ferociously loyal and had an earthy, expletive-laden way of making you feel loved. I don't know what age I was then, probably maybe 16, 17. And we, there would always have minded me though, you know. So we went to a restaurant one night with Brian and Dara and myself. And me and Brian were like, probably like kids, even though we were a good age. And um, we went up, the woman told us to go upstairs and look out the window um, while we waited for food and stuff. So me and Brian went upstairs and Derek came up a few minutes later and he kind of got a bit cross at us. What the feck are the two of you doing looking out the window? And we turned around and said, she told us to. And she was like, he was like, no, you didn't. She said, go upstairs and look at that menu. <laughs> and he was so thick. And we were laughing so much that they did come over to tell us that, to stay quiet. Like, really? Yeah. <laughs> In 1998, age 23, his quality of life had been limited drastically by his health. He became progressively reliant on oxygen, initially throughout the night and then 24 hours a day. His skin had a bluish hue, a telltale sign of oxygen deprivation. The noise of the oxygen tanks pervaded our living room at that time. It was apparent to all around him that his health was in decline. While he remained full of good humour, it was growing harder for him to speak and his ability to move about easily was severely limited. It was a gradual process, but he was deteriorating. But I suppose in the six to nine months preceding the transplant, it became evident he just, you know, he was not able to go out as much as before. I used to call over, I suppose maybe on a Saturday or Friday night or Saturday night, we'd watch a video, whatever it was. like. And uh, But he, yeah, he, he just kind of stopped going out at the time. And probably was short of breath. So I knew he was very sick. It still came as a surprise when he went, when the, you know, was the transplant thing. It's always a kind of a shock when it comes. Around this time, Dare would have had frank conversations with his medical team about his prognosis. They would have told him how, in his position, he was much more likely to die than to recover from his illness, given the stage he was at. The only potential salvation was a transplant. For CF patients in the late 90s, a heart and lung transplant offered the greatest hope of survival for someone whose health had declined to the extent that Durs had. He was told that without the transplant operation, he would likely not live beyond another six to nine months. Durr had to make up his mind whether or not he would go through with it. The psychological toll of waiting being a factor he had to weigh up against the chances of success. He was actually at the point of doing in a way, at that stage, I mean, he wouldn't have lived maybe a month, and or maybe not. First he made up his mind and he said he'd have the heart and lung transplant if he get one. We went over for two weeks, and they gave him a good telling of what it was all about. And he said to me, what will I do? Will I go for it? I said, I'm going to do over it, you know, make up your own mind. So he said, what will I do? I'm dying to lose. He said, I'll go ahead with it. Indeed. With nothing to lose, Dare chose to take the chance on a transplant. Transplants are complicated operations that are reliant on organs becoming available and mostly this is the result of tragic circumstances in someone else's life. There is a common misunderstanding that in order to receive a transplant, one must just wait until it's their turn. The reality is much more complicated, however. When organs become available, the decision on who receives them is based on medical suitability primarily. For more complex transplants, like my brother's, 
There is also consideration of how likely a person is to survive the operation and the subsequent recovery period. At 7.30pm on the 19th of November 1998, his pager bleeped. Those on transplant lists at that time will know what that bleep means. It alerts you to contact the transplant centre as organs which may suit you have become available. I was with him as it bleeped on that evening. I remember saying that this is probably a false alarm. We had had those before. It was around 7.28ish and it was towards the end of Emmerdale and I remember I had my bag in the corner of the living room. I was doing something, schoolwork or whatever and then I saw Derry's face kind of get a bit hyped but I took no notice because the beep would have gone off with false alarms before and Derry went out and made the phone call just to check that and whoa, when I, we saw his face and the commotion after he came back in we knew this was real like mom was in the shop I think working and I don't know who went down for her but PO I think it was and um, the hype and then that night I think we drove in separately I don't know I remember saying goodbye to him there I suppose I at the time was what 15 14 15 I still didn't realize the seriousness of what he was going for and stuff but he was yeah I'll be around sure there'll be no fear of me no fear of me mind yourselves mind yourselves that was always there, though. If there was anything, he'd make sure you were OK. The next hurdle for Dare was to get from our home in Glenville to London before the 11pm deadline. This was because such transplants could only be carried out in the UK at that point. There was a procedure for Irish patients to ensure that they could be transported to the UK as a medical priority. It involved commercial airlines, PIN codes and priority phone numbers. That evening, those phone lines remained unanswered. Rang a number, it was a machine answered, and I had Lincoln's number, with the number of the flight, the number of everything. And when we rang it, all we get was an answering machine, which was very useless to us, like at that particular time. I suppose the night was going on, and the time was running out. He was to be over for 11 or half past. Yeah. This time now it was around 8 o'clock or sometime. Or half past 8, I'd say he changed four shirts with sweat. This was simply frantic. You have a chance at life and to avail of it you have to be across the Irish Sea in less than three hours and you just need someone to answer the phone. The medical urgency, the stakes being so high, the fear of what might or might not happen had paralysed all of us in the house that evening, except my brother who was fighting for his life at the end of a phone line. The surprising solution to our logistical nightmare was organised through the Irish Air Corps in the form of the much maligned government jet. At half seven last night, the government jet was being refuelled in Baldonnell when an urgent request came through to divert to Cork Airport for the emergency transfer to London of 24-year-old Dermot Fenton, who suffers from cystic fibrosis. At the time, Tom Kitt was Minister of State for Labour, Trade and Consumer Affairs and was en route to Brussels to attend a European Commission meeting. It was effectively an ordinary, west, I suppose, dreary evening for me in Val Donnell, and it was soon to become something very different and something very meaningful, if I could say so. I was in Val Donnell Airfield. I was Labour, Trade and Consumer Affairs Minister at the time in the government, which was a busy ministry and which meant going quite often to Brussels for meetings. So on that particular evening, I was in Val Donnell with the relevant officials. We would often go commercially, but if the government jet was available, obviously we would use that. So the meeting was going to take place next morning early. So we were there and what happened was uh, generally you meet the, the Air Corps personnel and the, the Air Corps 
did contact me at, at one stage and said, look, there's a, an urgent situation, mentioned Dermot and that he needed to get to London and they officially needed my permission. And I said, look, let's, let's get going straight away, which we did. Then really, as I said, it became a very different <laughs> journey from any I've had to, to these meetings. So uh, we got down to Cork, we landed the plane that was explained to me what was happening. Myself and the officials, basically, we got out of the way, got down to the back of the plane. It's not a huge plane, as you can imagine. And then uh, Dermot and his mom came on board and we headed off then for London. Dermot Fenton was in a relaxed mood as he sat in his hospital bed. He described his surprise when he realised he'd be travelling to his double transplant in style. If it was a lovely morning, sorry to be getting on the government jet late, but I suppose at that moment I wouldn't take much notice of anything really like. Not only was it the government jet, but junior minister Tom Kitt also came along. He, he was very nice fellow, Tom Kitt, Minister Kitt. He, um, he came down and he spoke to Mem and myself and he gave Mem a miraculous medal that he used to wear himself. And uh, as far as I know, he said his father used to wear it. That was nearly a family heirloom with him. Like, but um, he gave it to us and he thought we needed it more at that stage. I had this green scapular with a little medal attached in my wallet and, and whatever. It just instinctively, I took it out and, and, and gave it to uh, Dermot's mom and, and wished them well. And the background of that is that my late father, he had a heart attack basically when he was relatively young, 60 years of age. And we were all, you know, quite young at the time. But he, he did, he had an earlier attack and not a severe, some many years before that. And he was a very religious man and he had great devotion to this green scapular. And he certainly uh, attributed the green scapular to his to his survival on that occasion. Certainly helped him through. So he gave us all in the family this green scapular, as I said, with the medal attached. Through the years, we would have all worn it as we played football down in Galway over the years. I kept this particular one that I had for years that my dad had given to me and in my wallet. So I just gave it to your mom and wished her well. Now, needless to say, I was down in, in Galway maybe a week or two after. I was telling my mother about what happened. She duly replaced the green scapular very quickly. <laughs> It's not often kind of positive things happen, I suppose, too, when you're in the, the humdrum of politics, there's a, there are ups and downs in it. But if, quite frankly, I had a very, a very happy you know, career and I have good memories of my time in, in, in politics, this would be one of, it would be, quite frankly, one of those major, major events. And, just, and it came out of the blue, which was just uh, yeah. probably even made it even extra special. You're listening to A Man From Cork, documentary on News Talk. We knew very few details at first. We had been told little of the person who had lost her life to donate their organs, only that it was a young man who had died in an accident. After an arduous eight-hour surgery, my parents got the news from doctors that Durr was recovering well following the transplant. His previously bluish skin had already turned to a healthy pink. Despite the mammoth operation he had just been through, he had only one request, which made for colourful headlines in the next day's newspapers. But he walked fairly fast too. He was walking for half a set that night. But she turned him 24 hours. The first thing he said was, did you get a bed? And the next thing the fingers were up again for a pencil. And he wrote down Guinness. It was a good one, like Guinness. like. Despite the seriousness of the operation, Dermot had only one thing on his mind when he came to. There was a nurse coming to me. I wasn't able to speak at the time and... She, I had a ventilator down my throat and she was stopping the talk and she handed me a piece of paper to write what I wanted on it. So first thing that came into my head out of the thing was a point to Guinness. It didn't come or anything like but it would have been good. <laughs> Following the operation, Der and my mother spent three months in Harefield Hospital while he was in recovery, 
with visits from her dad and other family members during that time. I think for her mum, it was the hardest of all. She did more than anyone could ever imagine for him. She stayed with him all, all his time over there. They had to live in a flat over there for a while, didn't they? Yeah, that's And right. uh, they did. And that was a kind of a dreary place enough where Gobnett used to stay. And she'd have to travel in the dark after being maybe down there with him until late. Not so nice. I went over for a week. Like, I remember the apartment over there and there was actually a doctor in the hospital that I thought I was going to marry and everything, Dr David. And they got a great kick out of it, Mom. And Derek, I think it kept him going because any letter that I got home afterwards when throughout the three months was Dr. David was with a woman today and I used to be raging <laughs> like so totally distracted the fact that Dare was over in England in a hospital for three months and everything but in fairness to him he was as tough as old boots and got through it all and came home there was a big night in in the airport when he came home because of course Dare went to the point to Guinness after he got out of his um his big operation and um that was a huge night I'd say everyone in the parish was out in the airport that night honestly felt like a celebrity so I can only imagine what way he felt after going through one of the biggest operations of anyone's life. A good lot of people went to went, went to meet him at the airport and he got a great reception in. They offered him a point of Guinness he, and um, they had it full for him and all he said he had two hands <laughs> and uh, they gave him another one. <laughs> A wave of media attention followed his return home from London. There were radio interviews, appearances on The Late Late Show and numerous newspaper articles. He was an excellent raconteur, so people liked to hear from him. The biggest change, though, was Dar's quality of life. Once dependent on an oxygen tank, he was now free to do things he never thought were possible. And he came home and he was, when he was fairly well able. He started making dog kennels and little fall horses for the couple of hens and that kind of stuff, or chickens. And um, he started making them in Selium. And he, he lived an active life that way. Then he started the boarding kennels. That went very well for him. You know, he had so many eight or ten pins for, for, for dogs. And he was making the things in, the sh- in one shed. Was, there was a door into the kennels from there, so he was with the dogs as much as he was, as anything else. But he was always so busy. And I'd say it added years to his life. Yeah, he was able to do way more. I wouldn't say like the mom relaxed because she was always worried about there and stuff. He definitely um, was able to do 100% more than what he was, like even going out the nights out and everything, like in concerts. He actually got to go on holidays and Dare never got to go throughout his life. He went twice or three times and by God, he loved it. His social life improved greatly and along with his friend Peter, he went to many concerts across the country, including the Rolling Stones when they played Slane Castle in 2007. Here, Peter describes going to that concert and realising that Dar had gone missing. I lost him, like halfway into the concert, he disappeared and uh, I rang him. Yeah, I'm after meeting up with a girl over here and he was. He said, I'm fine, I'll talk to you later on. Got to the end of the concert, couldn't find him, rang him wouldn't answer the phone and we were staying in a hotel in Drogheda so we had to find a bus to get back to the hotel and we were in Slane and I could not find them we had to walk probably three miles to get to the bus looked over as much as you can in a crowd of 8,000 people trying to find them kept bringing the phone so I eventually said I cut my losses went got the bus back he wasn't on the bus got back to the hotel and when I got in the front door of the hotel 
there was a, I could follow the, the trail of footprints all the way up to my room. And if I got up to the room and if I ended up inside in the bat, <laughs> happy out, got, got dirty, got waiting, came back, having a bat. Uh, how are you? How was your day? He always knew he wasn't around for the longest time. I think he always went about things with kind of getting the maximum enjoyment and satisfaction out of it. Because he, he, you know, he knew he wasn't going to live to be eight years old. You know, I think he always said, I'm going to make the best of the time I have here. While the transplant drastically improved his quality of life, his health was still prone to complications from a variety of factors, including the harsh toll anti-rejection medication takes on a body. Taking that life-preserving medication resulted in him needing a kidney transplant, which he received in 2006. He was in hospital for just six days at that time. In 2013, he experienced a particularly trying bout of illness. Owing to corrosion of his veins, caused by the many years of medication he had been on, often taking up to 100 tablets a day, he faced the prospect of losing his leg in an amputation. This hit him harder than the other procedures he'd been through. It came a few weeks after a failed bypass surgery was attempted to save his leg. Like after everything Dara went through, I think he absolutely hated that. Because like at one stage, I remember being in with mom when he had the operation and um, he didn't know whether he was going to get half his foot off or half his leg off. Like he did not want to lose half his leg. We were inside that day and I we were watching our phones like mad and Dare rang us and like it was weird. He was like, hi doll, is mom there? I'm fine. And all that we had to, wanted to know was whether it was the foot or the leg. And he was like, oh, no, 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 just the foot. And he was happy out. And I do think it was not one of the hardest things because like Dare went through so many hard things, but he he hated it. Like the idea, I remember pushing him one time and blowing Mahon Point in a wheelchair and I knew he despised it, but he fought so feckin' hard to get back and get walking because he had crutches and everything at one stage and they used to kill his hands. And then he had his boot, a special boot, and you wouldn't even notice it. And he came back from it. Do you know? He really did like... Like when he got from top of his foot amputated at that time, he's calling maybe on a Tuesday when he's not even to the hospital. And like he went through horrendous things at the time. But he was still, like when he got into the hospital, he was in the best, best of form. Like I'd look, I'd look forward to going to meet him because of, because of the crack <laughs> and just sagging and messing. But like what he went through that time was incredible, you know. There, there was one night, and it was probably, must have been in the night just after operation week, just before it, text himself, uh, calling after work, and I got text back saying, uh, maybe not tonight, the form isn't great. And um, I was talking yes. after the governor. Apparently, they messed up his meds um, after the operation. He wasn't given enough painkiller at all. Like, the, the, the text message was, I'm not in the best of form. <laughs> the reality was, like, he was in agony, probably. By 2015, time was running out for Dar. He experienced a number of heart attack type episodes during the year, in April and again in July. He recovered from each quickly and resumed working with his boarding kennels or helping out on the farm. The question of how much more he could endure was at the forefront of our minds, however. We became so used to the cycle of illness and recovery that when another heart attack occurred in December, we were shocked to be told that he had just hours left. In his typical style, he turned those two hours into two days. Two heartbreaking yet joyful and loving days by his bedside in Cork University Hospital before he gently slipped away in the early hours of December 30th in the midst of one of the many named storms of that particular winter. 
His burial on New Year's Day was in the midst of a subsequent rainstorm. It felt oddly befitting. The heavens cried, we felt. I remember going into the room to Mom and Mom was so strong through it all. She really was like, and like he was her best friend in the whole world. There was thick as thieves, the two of them. And I saw Darren and I was just like, go on, do it just one more, one more time. I just wanted him to give it one more go, even though he was after giving it probably 300 times throughout his lifetime. It was just so hard. And then the room was just so quiet. And like, I knew he was gone. I kissed him and everything. It was just, it was just crap to say the least. He, he died on the worst night of weather that was ever heard of, it. And he was being buried. On New Year's Day, the wo- I never saw the weather so bad. There was storm, rain, everything. But like the priest said at the Mass, he said he died in a storm, he's being better than a storm, and his life was a storm. It was my first experience of grief. Our loss seemed huge, and indeed it was. There was the centre of our family life. My first return visit to Glenville following his funeral, I remember seeing his van parked in the yard, normally a sign that he was around, and a sense of disappointment in the realisation of knowing that this time he wasn't there stays with me still. His loss was felt by family and friends alike. He enjoyed life and he had a great life, as well as a, as a hard time. <laughs> he had a hard life, but he made good of it. That's the way I put that. He made good use of it. You can remember the big things that, you know, the fact he was at our wedding, he's our best man, and added so much to that day. It wasn't the big things, it was like, just going for a point on Friday night, like, he was really one person you could actually just talk about anything with. I don't have any brothers, but he was the, he was the closest I, I ever had to a brother. I actually met somebody yesterday in the creamery that I wouldn't have seen in years, and they had lost, buried their father during the week. And he turned around and said to me that he was like, ever since Jared died, walking into Cades County was never the same. Because before you'd hear Jared's laugh and you knew you were guaranteed onto a great night that there was going to be a bit of crack inside it. And like, what is it, five years later, me hearing that yesterday was like, oh my God. Just like, that, yeah, just to hear somebody saying that about him and the affection that they said it with was just... It meant everything, because there was everything to us. And, like, I just love that people would still mention his name to us. When you lose someone, you seek every possible way to keep them with you. Family and friends talk you about him, a photo to spark a memory, or seeing his sense of mischief in some of his nieces and nephews is a consolation that helps keep him alive. However, again, in Der's case, we had something else to latch on to. We knew his heart, the one he had until 1998, was still beating, literally. Transplant patient Dermot Fenton today told how he came face to face with a woman from Hull in the UK who had received his heart in a double swap transplant operation. Although Dermot only needed a transplant, the heart to support his new lungs had to be transplanted as well. This meant his own heart could save someone else's life. His heart was transplanted to Hull woman Janet Netherton. She had needed a transplant after collapsing in her home. In an amazing coincidence, Dermot and Janice met days later while exercising in Harefield Hospital's gym, but only discovered the significance of their meeting when she saw his name on her chest x-rays. 
Darren Janet crossed paths many times over the years that followed the transplant, mainly as they participated in TV or newspaper interviews about their unique story. At the time of producing this documentary, his heart still beats in Janet, some 24 years later. The daisy chain of his domino transplant resulted in life beyond his own enduring after he died. It remains amazing to me that she lived her life in tandem with the man who gave her his heart. On the 20th anniversary of Dara's transplant, I wrote an article about his life and transplant experience. Many people got in contact to share their stories, to tell of their own transplants or to talk about the decision to donate a loved one's organs following a tragic loss. One person in particular stood out for having a story that did not fit into any of those categories. Leona contacted me with a query about where the transplant had taken place. It struck me as odd and I immediately had a sense that some new connection was to be made. However, what I learned from Leona was much more surprising than I expected. My mum's name was Magella Gargan MacDonald and she lived until she was 32 years of age. When she was nine, she was diagnosed with cystic fibrosis. You know, the cystic fibrosis didn't define her at all. What I remember of my mom is a very strong, courageous, brave, humorous woman. She defied all the odds that were there, I suppose, at the time. Like, she got married. She had a baby, which was very, very uncommon at the time. She didn't let it define her. She lived life to the full. She did the mini marathon one year. She travelled. You know, she she made the best of the situation that she was in. Around early 97, she decided that she would opt for the transplant. She kind of saw that as her last option. And, you know, obviously she was going downhill at that stage. She wanted as much time as she possibly could have. She wrote a letter to me and she specifically stated in it that I've decided to go for the transplant and if I get it, brilliant, but if not, that's my fate and I accept it. It was difficult reading, I'm not going to lie. Like, um, I found it unexpectedly as well. She had it tucked away in a photo of the two of us and it was in the back of the photo album. And I don't know if it was a case that my dad had found it and put it there for safekeeping or it was the case that mom put it there in hope that I'd find it but it was just one of them things I was flipping through the album wasn't expecting to find it and then came across it so in hindsight like it's a lovely letter to have and I'm I'm so glad that I do have it but at the time I was like that was heavy for a 14 year old you know I just remember that my mom was in the Brompton in London and was very sick at the time. She rang home to say to my dad that there was a possible match. And I know that my dad would have been very much like the feeling of elation for an hour and then just the crashing, crashing low that came after it when I suppose she found out that it wasn't for her. And yeah, she came home probably a couple of days later and she was dead within the week of Theo's brother getting it. So The story that she had said to my dad was that when she asked who it was for, obviously the nurse couldn't give details, but just the nurse told her that it was for the man from Cork. And that's all I ever heard. So, you know, it was just very much a case. When I saw Pio's story published, I was like, right, this this is probably just going out on a complete whim here. But the dates were just too coincidental for me. 
not to, I suppose, assume that it was his brother. For me, it brought a lot of closure. I had spent, you know, 20 years wondering what had happened to this man because I suppose I knew that had my mom got the transplant, you know, she would have lived every day to the full. And, you know, she she would have made use of the second chance of life. I got a lot of comfort from it, just knowing that, you know, he got an extra 17 years. His story sounded to me like he used every single minute of that the same way that my mum would have. The realisation for me of this sliding door was amongst the most complicated feelings I've ever experienced. Knowing that the opportunity that Dara had had pass someone else by while being tantalisingly close really confronted me with the randomness of life. Yet, the presence of Dara in Leona's life as someone she wondered about over the years without even knowing his name comforts me in some way. There is a lesson about connectedness and chance, I'm sure, but it is hard to know how to process that. There's something in there too about living life to the fullest, not just for yourself, but to honour others. My brother lived his life like a person living for two. Equally, Dara's story, Janet's story, Magella's story are testaments to the life-changing power of organ donation. My mom was a central part of Dara's story. She died in April 2021, a few short weeks after we recorded her speaking about Dara. For more information on donor cards and organ donation, visit ika.ie. A Man from Cork was narrated by P.O. Fenton and produced by Daniel Cahill. Archive news clips courtesy of Virgin Media Television. Find more documentary and drama at newstalk.com.